1: Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 371 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Adam, and I'm all by myself today. Sorry for the delay. This episode's coming out uh, a day late, but hopefully not a a buck short, as the uh, old punk rocky songs like to say. Uh, Today's interview, or today's episode, rather, is an interview I did with Daniel Handler, who you may recognize as the person behind Lemony Snicket and the Series of Unfortunate Events, uh, one of the many, many uh, children's series that was a huge part of my upbringing, which was a lot of fun. Uh, It also became very, very popular uh, on Netflix, and we did a little bit of a chat about that. He has a new book out called Bottle Grove. Um, You may not know this because he writes under the pen name Lemony Snicket for Kids, but Daniel is also an award-winning adult author, so uh, Bottle Grove is very, very funny and uh, very wild, and it's a unique story. And uh, as we do with just about all of our interviews, uh, we we start off the conversation with, with Daniel, you know, breaking down what the book is is all about. So I'll let him more eloquently describe it, but it's really fun. I think you guys will really enjoy it uh we had a a whole lot of fun just kind of joking around and talking about the craft of writing and um how he goes about his day and where he um you know sort of sees his ideas and just lots of really fun stuff about the the idea of writing and he has some unique thoughts on uh on writer's block and just all sorts of fun stuff so it was really cool to get to talk to him um I did, of course, ask him a few Lemony Snicket-related questions because I feel like as a child of a certain age, I couldn't have not asked him certain questions about Lemony Snicket. That would have been a little weird. Um, But, yeah, it it was really fun, and we had a great time talking. I think you guys will really enjoy it as well. If you want to get a hold of us, you can always email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. We have a website of the same handle professionalbooknerds.com and wouldn't you know it we've got twitter and instagram with a very similar handle at pro book nerds uh, if you're not following us on instagram and twitter i highly recommend doing so twitter we have a lot of fun with all, all the time and instagram we like to do lots of giveaways for all the, the lovely books that we get um so if you're not following us there be sure to do that uh if you haven't done so in a while if, if you wouldn't mind going into itunes and giving us a quick five-star rating and just you know Real quick sentence about what you like about the podcast. It really helps people find us just a little bit more easily uh, and it makes our day. So we, we appreciate that. So if you're enjoying this book nerdery, please feel free to do that. Uh, I think that is just about all the housekeeping. I do want to remind everybody that now that we are officially in September, September 18th is Read and Ebook Day. So go to readandebookday.com for more information about how that holiday is celebrated. It's just a little thing I created about six years ago to celebrate. Uh, digital literacy and it's a lot of fun overdrive has a ton of fun with it and we're gonna give away a whole bunch of stuff so go to read to check it out and uh, yeah I think that's just about everything so I'm not gonna let you wait any longer I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Daniel Handler the genius behind Lemony Snicket on the professional book nerds podcast <laughs> Hi everyone, it's Adam again, and I cannot tell you how excited I am to be joined by Daniel Handler today on the phone, whose latest novel, Bottle Grove, comes out later this month in August. Uh, He has written several books as an adult, and you may have read a few of them, but he also has written just, just a few books as a children's author under the title Lemony Snicket, which is a series of titles that I grew up reading, and I'm very, very excited to talk about that, and also the adult books. Uh, All of the Series of Unfortunate Events books have sold well over 70 million copies, and they've been translated into 40 languages. Um, I am so excited. First off, Daniel, thank you for joining me today.
0: Uh, My pleasure. Thank you
1: for having me. And uh, before we started recording, we were kind of joking around. This is actually, we had to do a, a slight reschedule uh, you were sitting in a, well, not really sitting in a tornado, but you were sitting near a tornado last week, so I'm glad everything is okay on your end.
0: Uh, thank you very much, yeah. It's, um, made for a fantastic excuse to delay a number of things. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> there's nothing like a tornado to really, um, clear your inbox.
1: Now, I, I would love you to confirm something for me, because the when the publisher told me this, I immediately asked, like, you know, is everything okay? Is he safe? And they responded by telling me you were drinking gin and reading fairy tales. Is that accurate? Um, it is. It's very accurate.
0: We, um, uh, you know, I don't mean to make light of natural disasters in a world, uh, uh, wrecked by them often, but, um, I... There was a um, tornado approaching me here in Cape Cod, um where I've been lounging around a kind of uh, neighborhood of spiffy beach houses. And there's, um, I guess, tornadoes never, ever come here. So they were, um, it was unusual even for the time. And then I grew up in California where um, panic about the weather is not, has you can't hold a candle to New England (laughs) general panic about the weather that happens all the time. So they said, there's a tornado, everyone panic. And I thought, but what am I going to do? (laughs) So I went down to the basement um, with my wife, and we lounged around and read The New Yorker until uh, the Internet told us that the tornado had passed and that it hadn't touched down anywhere near us. And then the power went out uh, basically for a day. And then some of the power went back on and went back on in our house. But anyway, just kind of our neighborhood turned into a very um, calm... Let's drink up all of the white wine before it goes warm, kind of party. <laughs> and it was, there were some martinis served quick while they would be cold. And um, for another project I'm doing, I'm reading the complete tales of Hans Christian Andersen. So I lay on the sofa for a long time having a martini and drinking uh, and reading the uh, tales of Hans Christian Andersen, which, um,
1: you know, it's not the worst way to spend an afternoon under any circumstances. Yeah, I absolutely told all of my coworkers. they asked me, they're like, well, aren't you supposed to be doing an interview right now? And I explained what you were doing, and we all determined that that is is the life we are looking to lead someday. So I think you are, uh, I believe the term would be living large. That was a a good job by you.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I felt pretty good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Like, if civilization were coming to an end because of this tornado or another natural disaster that... This was a good way to kind of spend its last few minutes. Yeah,
1: there are there are worse ways to go out. So, so we... <laughs> of course, I am deeply apologetic for any
0: inconvenience that caused the Professional Book Nerd podcast. I would not <laughs> want to imply that I'm blind <laughs> to your pain just because I was drinking martini and reading fairy tales instead of
1: talking to you. I was able to pull through. It's been a week, so there were a lot of tears shed, but I, I've pulled through. So thank you for your concern. You're a true gentleman. Certainly. <laughs> uh, I think we're both stronger for the experience. Absolutely. So we, um, I always love making sure the, kind of the, the top of our conversations that uh, authors get a chance to talk about their latest books. So before we get too far into gin and stories and get derailed, would you mind kind of giving our audience a little bit of an introduction to your newest book, Bottle Grove?
0: Uh, certainly, although it's not that far from what we've been talking about in a way. That's true. Um, Bottle Grove is a novel about uh, marriage uh, sets against the backdrop of, uh, San Francisco as it goes through the rapid social and political and cultural changes that San Francisco is going through right now. So it is about, uh, two marriages, one, um, based on love and the other one based on money that both, um, intersect and, um, collide with one another and both have their ups and their downs and it is, um set against the city, which appears to be changing, and um, there is a shape-shifting fox character (laughs) that runs throughout the novel um, that, like San Francisco and like Marriage, is kind of half-tamed and um, has a certain wildness underneath it that no one knows if they can trust. So that's Bottle Grove. Bottle Grove is the name of a fictitious park in San Francisco and also the name of a fictitious bar in San Francisco, so there are many um, cocktails being slung <laughs> as these two couples uh, kind of ricochet around. I, I so to, it's not uh, the opposite of drinking gin and reading a fairy tale. Uh, it's not the
1: same thing. but It's not quite the opposite. It's adjacent. It's nearish.
0: Yeah. Um, I will. They both be working. I guess is the idea.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I will say. Um, so people may or may not know this by your background, but you, in addition to being a, an author, you're also a, a playwright. And to me, sort of the. Chaotic nature of everyone like swirling around in this story, it almost feels like a ready made stage play. Like, I felt very, um, Mm. like noises off or like don't drink the water. Like, I could very much see this being on a stage as well.
0: Um, thank you. I mean, it's not very, um, farcy, but I think Mm. it's theatrical. I mean, um, is definitely full of people sitting around in bars having conversations that they might uh, later regret. The um, the marriage that's based on love um, uh, slowly begins to drift apart as San Francisco changes and as the people in the marriage change. But there is also um, a marriage that is kind of operating as a long con in which a woman is attempting to marry someone just for the enormous tech fortune that is going on and she's being coached in this endeavor by a bartender of um, dubious decision-making quality (laughs) and um, as with many things where people make a plot of a long con based on dubious decision-making capabilities things don't go that well.
1: Uh, It it also kind of feels me like and you can correct me if I'm wrong but it, it feels like you enjoy conveying sort of the kind of like shades of gray where a book doesn't really comfortably put characters in a box of saying like, Oh, this is the person you're supposed to root for or against and vice versa. Like it seems to me like you like kind of playing in those, in those various lines there.
0: I mean, I like a story that surprises me. And, um, the vast majority of my friends are human beings. So they're (laughs) flawed and, um, you know, sometimes seem like heroes and sometimes seem like villains and sometimes, seem like perpetrators and sometimes seem like victims, so um, I like a story to reflect that kind of thing. Um, I don't write very realistically, but I like to make the people as realistic as possible as they're put into
1: kind of uh, unbelievable situations. Uh, so along those lines of like, putting them into you know, extreme situations, um, we've had uh, several authors tell us, um, Harlan Coben most recently in an interview, that... He likes to start his, his stories just kind of by asking like a what if question, like what if that person I'm looking at is actually a homeless guy who's trying to murder me and, and sort of those things. And, and I've seen you say kind of similarly that you live in a state of like bewilderment all day long. Um, do you sort of do a similar thing by being always curious about what's around you? Like, Is that how you are able to think of sort of these fantastical elements that are, you know have a realistic aspect to them but then are extended beyond that
0: i think so yes i mean i think that i because i have the luxury of um getting to be an artist for a living i have a great deal of time in which i'm um kind of set to receive so i take a lot of long walks around san francisco and um the stories that people told me of their marriages and other stories that i overheard or um would hear snippets of conversation and kind of make up about those marriages led me to the plot of this book. So I like to definitely take a pebble from
1: um, something that I see around me and then I kind of skip it across the water of my imagination. I think. <laughs> uh, do you sort of reserve time for yourself every day to just be sort of like you said, kind of taking in the information around you? Is that something that you like sort of block out every day for your part of your you know what would be a, a work day, I suppose?
0: Well, I mean, my supreme luck is that I don't have to set aside that time mm. because I'm self-employed and very few people are checking up on me. And so I get to stop my work day around the time that everybody else wishes they stopped their work day. So I work hard in the morning and, um, you know, have a little lunch or something and work a little bit in the afternoon. And then just when everyone else has to say, okay, it's time to look busy for another couple of hours before the <laughs> boss and says I get to stop, so I spend a lot of that time. I write most of the time outside the house nowadays, and um, and then I'm walking back or taking the bus back or um, just doing a lot of uh, kind of empty space where um, people are coming to me. Okay. And then I, and I think this is also has in common with a lot of writers, and it's I, I think a strange thing because I've certainly marveled with other writers at it, but if people know you're a writer they tend to tell you things out of all Mm. the people to tell you know (laughs) (laughs) and exactly the kind of people who are going to take one aspect of your story and turn it into something those are the people who often tell so people tell me things about their marriages and um i as i began this book i was kind of hitting a time in my life where the first wave of people i knew were divorcing and um you learn a lot more about a marriage when it falls apart from another person's marriage than you do when they're together. And so you hear a lot of stories and you kind of wonder at the nature of attachments and, um, you know, something that is very romantic to one person would be a completely intolerable situation to another. And you begin to just kind of wonder at the way we all bump up against one another.
1: That's really interesting. Would you say that your writing for adults has kind of followed a sort of um kind of similar like like life path as as you have like do you tend to really focus on the experiences that you're living at that kind of current time for your writing
0: Um, i mean i think you would almost have to Mm. um my first novel is about high school i have a, a small set of novels that are up i have a lot of young people in them and um you know i think if something's happening to you if you're around something it's almost impossible not to put that into your fiction project even people i know who write historical fiction or science fiction or other things that are kind of far flung from um their own realities it's still if you're having a fight with someone you're probably going to have that fight someplace in the book um
1: I'll be honest, I'm imagining kind of your friends and family sitting around with you and, like, having a conversation over those glasses of wine or something and saying something and then thinking to themselves, like, oh, man, that's going to be in a book someday.
0: Yeah, I try to be very clear about it. I'm like, (laughs) okay, this is going into a book, so don't talk about it anymore if you don't want to. But um, people do anyway.
1: Um, I've also seen you have an interesting take on writer's block. You kind of think that it's not a thing that exists, correct?
0: Um, well, I mean, certainly people have it. So I guess it exists in that way. I don't want to be the Marianne Williamson of writer's block (laughs) (laughs) and tell people that it's all nothing or toxic energy or something like that. But, um, I think it makes more sense to stay at your desk working than it does to decide that you have writer's block and that you can't do anything about it. So, um, there are days when I'm less enthusiastic about the project I'm working on or less enthusiastic about writing in general or, you know, just filled with despair and angst and pessimism the way so much of us are so much of the time. Uh, but then I'll just keep on writing. And my uh, belief is that writing a, some, a handful of terrible pages is better than writing no pages because at least with the terrible pages you can say well whatever I'm going to write it's not going to be like this I, by process of elimination I've decided
1: these paragraphs are terrible <laughs> and that kind of helps you along I feel like the Elizabeth Warren version of this part of the conversation would be something along the lines of like I don't know why anyone would become a writer just to complain about not having written anything kind of yeah. like the her quote yes I believe yesterday was about I don't know why anyone would run for president just to complain about all the things that we can't do as a president like I feel like there's an Elizabeth Warren tie-in here somewhere as well. Uh,
0: perhaps- yeah, I mean, it's the goal to mention every Democratic candidate for president because this is going to be a very tough conversation. Oh I boy! like a parlor game. Don't get me wrong, oh. but I'm not sure I can name all the candidates, let alone fit them all into my philosophy of life.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think after the you know those two, and then and Biden and Kamala Harris at that point, I think I've almost just about run dry, and then it's okay, just, good. <laughs> yeah, then it's just a bunch of um, generic older white guys, which right. seems to be everybody. <laughs> Uh,
0: yeah, right. No offense to present company, of course. Yeah, um,
1: no, 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 of course not.
0: I mean, I, when I was first starting out and an undergraduate and I knew I wanted to be a writer and I was studying writing with this uh, professor of mine and mentor of mine, Kit Reed, who uh, we lost recently. Um, but as school was approaching its end for me I said to her, I need you to tell me if I'm good enough to be a writer or not Hmm. and she said I can't tell you that because that has nothing to do with it what you have to do is to go someplace and spend a lot of time writing and just figure out if you like it figure out if that's something that you want to do all day long and I was so annoyed with her, as I often was (laughs) and she was right, as she almost always was Um, you know because I thought, why don't you just tell me Why why are you making me figure out something? I want to figure it out for me. But um, the best part of being a writer and kind of the only real reward is if you like it. And so I do know writers who kind of tricked themselves or were tricked by other people into the profession and they like some of its trappings or what it provides to them, but they don't actually seem to like the writing part very much. And I really like that part. And I was very grateful to have a mentor who made sure that that was the reason I
1: wanted to do it. Well, and, and I know you've talked about this too, but I, I feel like to really be able to be a writer for the you know the length of your career, you have to like it because it you has that has to be the positive aspect of it is is the writing because there's so much rejection you have to deal with even if you are and you know, you're talking about you know, your mentor basically being like, I can't tell you if you're a great writer because you could be an incredible writer and you could still get, you know, a hundred straight rejection letters. It doesn't mean you're a bad writer. It just means that particular person doesn't enjoy it. So I feel like you have to be able to find your own joy or else you'll just be miserable all the time.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it's hard to think of a situation that would be more ideal than mine. You know, I've had an unbelievable, tremendous amount of luck professionally, but I still have to spend most of my professional time writing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's not like another thing you get to do. You know, it's not like if you wait enough tables, you get to just like, you know, sit upstairs watching people go to the restaurant or something. You have to do the work, and so if you don't like it, it doesn't really help. Um, if you're being paid well or something. I mean, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong being paid well helps with a gazillion other things mm-hmm. but you still have to sit around and write it there's no shortcut to it <laughs> and so um if you don't like that part you're not going to be very happy with it and if you do you have a better chance of being happy although also you're a writer so chances are you're just kind of miserable anyway
1: <laughs> so along those lines um I'm curious you know I I know that like you you write out your first draft sort of longhand and 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 kind of go from there but is there an, a particular aspect of the writing process that, that you like better than others? Like, is it discovering a new idea, drafting it out? Are you one of those weirdos who likes editing? Like, what part of it really makes you happy and excited? Um,
0: I really like all of it. I mean, I'll start with some idea, and then what I usually do is go to the library or to my own kind of shelves of libraryness in my house and take down some books or otherwise get a hold of some books that seem like they go with the idea or go with what I'm trying to express. So then I have a few weeks of completely uninhibited reading and kind of obsessive reading and also instinctual reading. If a book leads me to another book, that's fine if I start a book and I think this isn't what I wanted at all, I can put it aside. And it's kind of this very magical... Um, kid-at-a-candy-shop feeling mm-hmm. about reading. And then I start to write things down um, on index cards, which I enjoy very much. <laughs> um, I look like a crazy person. <laughs> There's no getting around that. But and So then I end up with about a shoebox full of index cards, and then I start sorting them a little bit and just start writing. So then I have a handful of index cards and maybe a book or two for companionship and a legal pad, and I'm in a library or a cafe or some other weird uh, place. Um, Again, looking like a crazy person, looking like a (laughs) serial killer. But but I'm really liking what I'm doing. And then I have a whole mass of pages that are ghastly, just terrible. And it's really kind of a reassuring feeling there in the first draft when – terrible because it's supposed to be terrible so you just feel like you're right on target even though you're way off whatever target you're trying to hit and then so i do like the editing process so i like that part a lot i pretty much like all of it until the um very moment when you can't change anything Mm. you know they say okay this is it do you have any more changes and you say oh i found this little word or i think i want to do this thing here and they say okay that's it and you say it's a perfect book and they say okay this is it. The drawbridge is is closing. (laughs) This is your last chance. And I say, yes, I don't know why you keep asking me. Everything's perfect. (laughs) And then it shuts up and I think, oh my God, not only do I want to fix things, but I've written absolutely the worst book in the world. (laughs) There's no question that this is terrible. And so that's kind of an awful moment, but I
1: distract myself by trying to think of another idea. So once you have a a book that's officially done and and sort of out in the world and in the hands of readers, are you able to, and we've had people tell us, you know, once a book gets published, it becomes the reader's story and it's no longer theirs. Are you able to feel that way? Or do you look back on the books that you've written over the years and think, oh, I wish I would have done X, Y, and Z differently?
0: Um, I try not to look back on them. Mm. But I mean, in the same way that you look back on an argument that you had 10 years ago that you know, and you write a new ending for it, you think, Mm. here's what I'll say the next time I have this very specific exact argument (laughs) again with the same person under the exact same circumstances. (laughs) Or, you know, you think of some joke that went horribly awry. And you think of people you've upset. You think of um, people who upset you. You think of, you know, large, unchangeable things. You think of the whole past. So, definitely looking back on my books with regret is part of that, but mm-hmm. I try not to spend any more time on it than I spend on anything else, which is to say
1: that when I can't sleep, of course, I chew over all of it forever. <laughs> um, okay, I, I couldn't not ask you a little bit about Sears and Unfortunate Events, which I'm sure you just, at this point, probably are a little tired of talking about, but I will have co-workers yelling at me if I don't. Um,
0: uh, I understand, yeah. No, I don't um, complain about that. I don't know. <laughs>
1: Well, if you do, you can wait till we stop recording and then you can yell at me. I give you, (laughs) I think you're allowed to do that.
0: No, I mean, um, it's, if you're a writer that you would dare dream of anyone reading your work already seems ridiculous, right? The Mm. whole idea of writing fiction for a living is such a crazy thing to do. That to daydream about um, having a readership is already Putting yourself in some crazy percentage and the idea that there's some things that I made up many years ago that people are still really interested in mm-hmm. is, um, really remains a bewildering
1: blessing. So. Well, and I think one of the main reasons that it's so it continues to be beloved by you know people really of of all ages is the fact that like, you really sorta of root the I feel like the the base of the the story and the fact that, you know, there's not always happy endings and a lot of terrible stuff happens even if you do the right thing. Like I feel like and I think I think I've seen you see this basically like when you write for children not acting as if you're like greater than thou, like not treating them as if they're less than, correct?
0: I mean, yeah, I, I mean, it's not even the way you phrase it, like not treating them as if they're less than mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, because they're not. <laughs> um, they often have a stronger command of many um, facts and aspects of life than you do. They are, um, you know, they're just a wide variety. They're like people in that way. And so you have to treat them like people. Um, I also just think um, any book, certainly any fiction book that begins with the premise that you have something to teach somebody is going to be extremely tiresome. <laughs> and that's for grown-ups and for mm-hmm. children. Oh. Um, you know, nothing. nobody likes a scolding from a book.
1: Well, well, and also, you know, it just because a book is for children doesn't mean it can't be something that should be, you know, looked at as, as serious literature. Like, I, I think of... You know, when I think of classic literature, like, yes, I think of, you know, Dostoevsky and Hemingway and everything. But I also think of, you know, Charlotte's Web and The Giver and these books that we all read as as children that are so formative in what you become as an adult. And so I think it's important to put, you know, serious situations. One of the books that I read as a kid that I uh, still adore and was like a foundational thing for me was The Outsiders. And there's just right. so much death in that. And it, it's it's challenging, but I, I think those are the, the children's books that we look back on and remember. Um,
0: well, I mean, I think that's absolutely how children's literature works. You know, no matter what novel will come out this year that you will love, and obviously there's going to be very few novels besides Bobble Grove that even <laughs> approach the grandeur in of, your mind. Of course. But, <laughs> <laughs> but no matter what it is, no matter how much you love it, you won't reread it as much as you reread your favorite book when you were 12. Mm -hmm. It just won't happen. You won't read it 20 times. You know, people who do their dissertations on novels will read them fewer times than you'll read your favorite book in third grade. And um, the idea that, that the, these books that you read kind of later in life are somehow more influential or more important, I think is just a sheer fiction. It is, the books w- that we read over and over again it is that kind of sacred space in your head that gets a little blurry you know when you read the outsiders you probably pictured yourself kind of as some of the characters and let the whole book be a prism for how your life was shaped and there's not a lot of experiences that you have appreciating any kind of art form as an adult that approach that level and I mean I just think it's um, pretty indisputable that children's literature has this enormous effect. And so it's all well and good to um, write an essay naming some um, writers, very serious adult liter- literature as being the most important or the most influential. But meanwhile, in the actual culture of readers, where it's actually mm-hmm. going on, um, you know, many more people are reading Beverly Cleary with the kind of <laughs> fervent attention than, you know, any adult novelist you could think.
1: Listen, I was so incredibly influenced by Where the Red Fern Grows growing up that I have two dogs that look like the dogs in, in the book, but the last thing I want to do as an adult is read a book about dogs dying. Um, but I reread it so many times as a kid because I was obsessed with the story, and you're absolutely right. Like, I If someone hands me a book and there's a dog in it and it's an adult book, I literally will ask, like, all right, does this animal survive? Because if not, I'm throwing this back in your face.
0: Yeah, I mean... Um... It remi- it, uh, oftentimes the metaphor that it is in my head is for types of music, that um, serious uh, literary fiction is like classical music, mm. which is to say it's brilliantly constructed. It's a gorgeous piece of work. It's super admiral- admirable. It can be um, transportive and um, can speak to people all over the world in its language. I believe very strongly in it. I also think that we can't pretend that more people at any given moment are, like, you know, prostrate at the uh, throne of Brahms than they are listening to a Madonna song and having a great time. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And if somebody said, don't be ridiculous, Anton Dvorak has had more influence on American music than Aretha Franklin, <laughs> <laughs> See, like, if you walk down the street and ask people who Anton Dvorak is, what their favorite Dvorak sonata is, no one gives you a good answer. You know, but if you just say Aretha Franklin there's about five songs people can start to sing right now and find really moving and I just think that feels like children's literature to me is... is that you can't pretend that Goodnight Moon hasn't had <laughs> an astonishing emotional effect on an enormous group of people
1: so is uh, is Harry Potter like Justin Timberlake in this scenario we're creating? <laughs> who am I? <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Oh,
0: this is my this is my favorite. <laughs> I want to know who I am before I decide that J.K. Rowling is like Justin Timberlake. Although I will agree that the physical resemblance is super strong. I can right. never tell them apart.
1: You know what? I it's, I feel like series of unfortunate events is it, it's right up there with with NSYNC. So it's either like? You know, Backstreet Boys, or like Britney Spears, like something that was so defining. Although they kind of like faded away. I, I feel like I want to give you somebody more. Pop, you know, you said you said Aretha Franklin, so now I want to just like kind of the Temptations or something. I just want to stay in the Motown area.
0: Okay, I'll take any comparison. Okay, all right. I was gonna I say don't sit around and like to put myself in these maps,
1: but I, I'll be honest. Now all I want to do is just create a like a, a a spreadsheet of all of my favorite children's authors and compare them to Motown people. This is. Very important to me now. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel that would be
0: a fantastic meme.
1: Yeah, and a great you use have of a great mountain. meme in your future. Oh, I'm so excited to do this. Um, okay, so towards the end of our conversations, we do what we call the Nerd Nine, which is nine lighthearted questions. Not that anything I just asked you was super deep, um, but the first one is, "What's the last book you finished reading?" Oh,
0: Gosh, what's the last book I finished reading? Um, I would have to say. The last book that I finished reading, I'm skipping a book. The, the reason why I'm stalling is that I'm skipping a book I read and didn't like. That's okay. Which I wish to give no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, no, I mean, you can skip it. I'm, I, I will allow yeah. that.
0: I'll give no Spotlight, too. But the last book that I finished that I really loved uh, is this uh, very big book of poetry called A Sand Book by Arianna Ryans. She's a poet that I admire a lot, and um, she was off the scene. For a little bit I don't know what she was up to or I should say I didn't know what she was up to until I read this book that is uh, quite the interior journey so I read a lot of poetry and Ariane Ryan's is one of my favorites and um, I, I knew she had a new book out and I ordered it at the bookstore here and when I went to pick it up it was this big thick book which was really uh, surprising to me you know most volumes are these little
1: mm-hmm.
0: slender things and um, it was fantastic nice uh,
1: okay. do, you, do you have a favorite place to read um,
0: I like reading on trains a lot. Mm. Okay. I like reading in a bar very early before kind of anyone is there or anyone's making a lot of noise. Mm. Um, but I have an enormous chair at home that um where I do a lot of my most serious reading in particular, and I really love that chair. I've announced my plans to die in the chair, which I hope will not be some complicated thing where, like, I'll have to be dragged across town while dying to get to the chair. Um, But obviously, that's for other people to work out. But, yeah, it's a very big chair. We um, had it made by a chairmaker, and then um, kind of like the scene in uh, Spinal Tap where Stonehenge is the wrong size. Uh It came out, like way bigger than we thought and i thought oh,
1: perfect that that's is a
0: huge black chair to sit in and i really like it
1: that's amazing um i think i know the answer having seen interviews you've done but what was the book that kind of made you fall in love with reading as a kid
0: oh well i'll just talk for a moment about zilpha Keatley snyder who i think is an oft overlooked uh children's author we um just a few years ago, and um, I got to meet her and kind of be pals a little bit in um, the later period of her life. When uh, when I met her, when I was just kind of starting out in children's literature, and she read the Egypt Game and the Headless Cupid, and um, her books always or almost always have a touch of the supernatural, which is um, was really exciting to me when I was young, but also very realistic portrayals of. Um, all kinds of friendships. She's not afraid to tackle um, kind of race and class and broken families and a lot of things that you start to notice when you're young, but often is absent from literature. And then also, it has this kind of thrilling supernatural aspect to it, so it doesn't have the um, kind of social realist. Uh, mold that was not interesting to me as a child. So I read a lot of Zilf Keeley Snyder and I have a very distinct memory of that I would go to the library and I would get another book by her and I would read it and I would go back to the library. And then one day I was out of them and I said like, well, so where's the new Zilf Keatley Snyder in the <laughs> library? And said, well, she's an author, she's working really hard so I'm sure there'll be another book. And so I came back the next week and mm-hmm. there still wasn't one. <laughs> and I was like, alright, you know, I gave her a week. Yeah, Like... I'm willing to give someone a week. Everybody has busy times in their lives. <laughs> but now we're talking two weeks, and there's no oh, new novel by no. Keeley Snyder. So.
1: At that point, you'd been more than gracious, really. I mean,
0: Yeah, I thought so. And yeah. I think of it all the time when I meet young people who say, when is there going to be another book? And the answer is never soon enough. Mm-hmm. Even if I say, oh, I'm so glad you asked, two weeks. They're like, two the... weeks. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah,
0: so I understand
1: that now. Um, what is One Place you would like to travel that you have not yet been to?
0: Um, I was just reading about the art islands of Japan, which are, um, there's some works of art you can stay in like a hotel and you, you get on a boat and you go from different parts of the island or different islands. I'm not even quite clear on the whole thing, but I'm very excited now about the art islands of Japan. And, um, as you can see, I know hardly anything about them. I, read a little bit about them and I saw some photographs and a friend of mine went to the art islands of Japan and had a great time and so now I've become that kind of person where I'm about to tip over into being an expert on something that I actually know nothing about. I can feel myself about to start to go to parties and say like, you know what's amazing, the art islands of Japan (laughs) um, and then be unable to answer even the simplest question about it and so obviously I have to go sooner than later so
1: I catch up to my own pretentious nonsense. Yeah. um, Now Shima, isn't it? It's... It's yeah. Something like that? Yeah, I've I also know just enough to make myself sound like an idiot if I talked for one moment longer about it, but I have heard yeah. of it. <laughs> um do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate?
0: Hmm. Well I feel that so, I don't know. I have a lot of fun on holidays, basically, mm-hmm. and obviously I think that there's very high expectations for Limonisnkin and Halloween, which mm-hmm. I understand. Um, <laughs> but I think what I like best is New Year's Eve. My sister and I have a fancy dinner party every year on New Year's Eve with an elaborate theme and um, dishes that that match the theme in different ways, and um, you know we. Decorate, And my wife, who's an illustrator, designs a beautiful menu that people get to take home. And um, that the heart of a dinner party is really just people sitting around talking and having Mm -hmm. a wonderful time. And so I think some of the happiest moments in my life have been sitting at the head of a dinner table and just looking around and seeing a great group of friends, um, often kind of unexpected combinations, because my sister and I are co-hosting and we get along great but we have different friends and mm-hmm. so there's a fun venn diagram going on there and everyone's having like one more glass of wine or one more helping of the cheese course or whatever it is and, and relaxing and talking and uh it feels like the closest to kind of religious ecstasy that i get.
1: that is awesome uh are you a coffee person or a tea person
0: um i drink too much coffee so i'm trying to be more of a tea person but i am at heart a coffee person
1: cats or dogs
0: um dogs for sure
1: i have a favorite i say
0: say because i know that obviously this is a hot topic cat and dog and i can't even imagine what the podcast community thinks when somebody <laughs> expresses an opinion about this so i'll say that i admire cats more mm-hmm. because they don't need me and they're not interested really in human beings i admire that than an animal but
1: it makes me not want one. So, the reason that we asked this is my co host, who is not with me today, she is a cat person. And as I mentioned, I, I have two dogs. I'm a dog person. Uh, you are right that our fans care very deeply about this. I did a whole episode by myself one time about books that were about dogs. And apparently, I spoke too uh, impolitely about cats because the amount of we got more letters or more emails from that particular podcast about people yelling at me for cat shaming than any other thing in this podcast history. So, you're right, they feel very strongly.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I just think, and I do think cats are totally incredible in the way that they express utter disdain and contempt (laughs) for all of human civilization, which Mm -hmm. is an attitude, I think, that almost anyone can share at least part of the time in their life. To think like, wow, people are really, they've really screwed it up for everyone, and they're no fun compared (laughs) to the rest of the planet. (laughs) And I like that cats think that, but I don't want that in my life.
1: That's that's fair. Do you have a favorite food?
0: Um, I eat a lot of raw carrots. So I think if you had to make a chart, that would be my favorite food.
1: That is definitely the first time that has come up. That is that is wonderful. <laughs> and then uh, last one of these. If you could have dinner with one person dead or alive, who would you pick?
0: Oh, gosh. I don't know. I'm always afraid of, these, of that person particular question, because I always feel like it would be awkward, you know, <laughs> particularly dead. I think when you start thinking about dead people, like if you, ha- if you think, welcome, wonderful Russian composer, Dmitry Shostakovich, you have been brought back to life. <laughs> and here you are, you're having a chicken salad sandwich with this guy. And I just feel like he would say, like, what has happened in the world? How did I come back to life? You know, and I would say, like, no, 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 we're supposed to talk about, you know, one of your symphonies or something. And he would say, I'm not going to talk about that. I can't believe I'm alive again. So it would just be awful. But maybe Sun Ra. I guess I'll choose Sun Ra because I feel like he would not make it awkward. He's a, a jazz mm-hmm. a pianist and keyboardist who I admire very much. I have a gazillion of his records, and he made 30 gazillion. So one of the things <laughs> that I like is that no matter how familiar his music comes to me there's so so much more of it that i've never heard in my life and um and he also seems like he was uh dedicated to everyone having a good time and also he certainly claimed to be from space and to work in a number of different dimensions and so Mm -hmm. it seems like he would be not that surprised to be brought back to life see you know he'd be like oh here i am
1: this is why I love asking authors this question. Despite the fact that of all of the hundreds of people I've talked to, almost everyone kind of gives me this same, like, why are you asking me this question? I hate you. I love it because authors, what you just did, you basically broke down the question being like, how would they think? What's going on? Whereas if I was asked my brother, he would be like, oh, Ben Folds, the famous pianist who also, you know, has done pop music and has been such an integral part of my life. And that'd be full stop. But you really dug into it.
0: Ah, well... I think also uh, because of the crazy uh, streak of luck in my professional life, I've met many living Mm. people I admire, and sometimes it's great, and sometimes it's not. And so I wouldn't choose that necessarily, (laughs) (laughs) you know, because someone you admire a lot, sometimes it is best to just go on admiring them. Mm. Because sometimes they come over or something or you meet them and you know, you're like, how are you doing? And they're like, I'm fine. I have a piece of banana nut muffin (laughs) stuck like right here in my tooth. (laughs) And suddenly you're thinking the clock is running out. I'm about to stop talking to you. And we're talking about this banana nut muffin. But of course, of course you are, because what are you going to say?
1: Um, that is, that's actually really funny. If somebody, um, I always tell people, anytime someone asks me if I get nervous talking to people that I've idolized for so long, I always tell them that the way that I, I get over the the nerves is thinking about the fact that they also have to sleep at night and wondering which way they sleep. So I'm always like, I wonder if insert author a, who's very famous, uh, sleeps on their side or on their back and that humanizes them to me. And it makes me laugh nonstop. I highly recommend it.
0: Yeah, I think that's good. Right. That's a much safer,
1: Version of picturing them naked which is always what they tell you exactly well, we talked you know that's. I, I want to be respectful of them but think of them sleeping yeah and also
0: I, I I, used to think this like when they said it for public speaking like, Yeah. imagine the audience naked and I would think in what way is that more relaxing <laughs> yeah,
1: that's worse
0: right <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, because then your speech would have to be I appear to have interrupted an orgy and I'm so (laughs) sorry about it (laughs)
1: I'll Uh, be as brief as I can oh that's so funny so we always uh, we always end our conversations with one question for for every author and it's what do you hope readers both young and old take away from reading your books
0: oh gosh what do I hope they take away yeah Um, I just I guess I honestly don't approach that kind of experience like that kind of thing Mm. i hope that readers all over the world find literature that they like and literature that means something to them i hope it's something that transports them out of themselves but also in which they can recognize some things i just believe so strongly in the power of literature and i'm happy to be on the team and part of the kind of experience of what literature is but i don't Uh, whatever they want to experience from my work is fine Um, I've literally seen my book propped up propping up a chair and I (laughs) thought great use it for that that works
1: too oh you know that is absolutely perfect Daniel thank you so much for joining me today this was a blast thank you very much I had a lovely time Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from overdrive.com and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues.